You're listening to a sermon preached at Sojourn Church, J-Town. We are currently in a sermon series called Where We Are and Where We're Going, a vision series on direction in an unprecedented time. All righty. If you're sitting, I would encourage you to stand with me in honor of reading God's Word. And just as a reminder, if you feel comfortable to take your mask off, you can do that during the sermon. Uh, we just ask you guys to put it back on after we take communion. So today we're in Micah chapter 6. You got a Bible, a phone, a tablet, whatever you have in this modern age. Uh, let's start at Micah chapter 6. Micah is one of the minor prophets in the Old Testament. Uh, we're going to be looking at a, a two verses at the end, uh, or actually in the middle of chapter 6. So hear the word of the Lord. What should I bring before the Lord when I come to, know, come to bow before God on high? Should I come before him with burnt offerings, with year old calves? Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams or with 10,000 streams of oil? Should I give my firstborn for my transgression, the offspring of my body for my own sin? And then verse 8 is the answer. Mankind, he has told each of you what is good and what it is the Lord requires of you to act justly, to love faithfulness, and to walk humbly with your God. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray together. I'll just pray for your help this morning. May you speak to us. May your words um, bring life to us, Lord, in areas where it may be dark or dead or a struggle or difficulty, bring life to us, Father. And like we pray often, I uh, pray that we would do as James has commanded us not just to be ones that hear, but Lord, show us how to, to live and to do what you're commanding and, and showing us how to live life, Lord. So please help us in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. So if, you, if you're just joining us, we're, we're coming to the end of a sermon series that we do every year, we always take a little break in August and usually in January where we kind of uh, deal with kind of local issues and we do kind of like a, a, a short vision series. So this one's been uh, more around the, the idea of like five burdens that your pastors come with and we've entitled this uh, where we are and where we're going. Uh, so the first sermon was more about like um, sort of church and COVID during this pandemic. What's the fall look like for us as a church as we try to navigate the restrictions and all that's kind of going on right now with the virus that's still happening. Uh, the second sermon, uh, Jordan came and shared with us, our director of family ministries, like, what's this uh, doing families? How are we doing students and kids and moms and dads during the midst of this? I came back and zeroed in on marriage just for a week and talked a little bit about, like, uh, what can we do in the midst of this COVID season to talk about marriage and Husbands loving their wives and wives respecting their husbands. And then last week I came back and talked a little bit about discipleship with an emphasis on formation and practices. Um, just talking about like if, if our way of life, how we use our time and how we spend our days does not change. If we don't affect that, then the kind of transformation that we long for um, may be elusive. It may not actually really happen. And then today, what I want to do is land the plane and, and talk about justice for a few minutes. And so um, this sermon is sort of a, a preparation sermon that I, that I want to come back sometime in 2021. Right now, it's for January. 
but I have no idea what January is going to be like. If there's anything that we've learned during this season, any plans we make, we need to write it in pencil, amen, because uh, things can change overnight, and I have no control over it. But my desire is to come back sometime in 2021 and do a little bit of a longer series where we talk about race and justice uh, and the gospel. Uh, so today is more of um, preparation for that as we talk about this, this topic of justice. And so this is how I've uh, framed it in my mind, because this is a, a pretty broad topic. This is, um, there's a lot in the Bible of what it talks about justice. And so um, the best way that I've tried to do it as I started thinking and praying and working on this is if I had 20 minutes to talk about what the Bible says about justice, then what would I say? And so that's the framework I'm operating from. It'll be a little longer than 20 minutes. I want to give you bad news before you get to the good, right? I'll work through stuff kind of quickly and keep the energy up. Um, but it'll be more like 40, maybe. That's kind of what it is. But my framework has been, and my youngest kid goes, 40, like shocked by that. I looked to see what time it was. <laughs> but my framework here is just, I'm trying to, if I have a short amount of time, what's the best way for us to talk about this subject? And so that's what... I'm trying to do today, all right? So a couple um, um, articles or books, uh, just feel like this is important for me to kind of share. So a lot of what I've learned about justice, I am indebted to a guy named Tim Keller, uh, who's a retired pastor of a church in New York City called Redeemer Presbyterian Church. Uh, he's written a book called Generous Justice that I would recommend. Um, I think there's a slide on there for this one. And then he actually wrote, wrote an article uh, here recently, it's entitled A Biblical Critique of Secular Justice and Critical Theory. Um, and I know it sounds like a really dense title, but the article is very concise and probably in a nutshell shares kind of what he talks about in a book. Uh, I will link those uh, resources in our weekly email. If you don't get our weekly email, you can just email us at, J at JTown uh, Sojourn. I don't know. Just, just go to the website. I think it's sojournchurch.com. I think there's somewhere where an email, gosh, I should have all this stuff in my notes and I've been here for 10 years and I can't remember anything. So, um, or just come talk to me. I'll figure out after service, we get you linked up somehow. All right, so yeah, all right, there we go. Uh, that's what I wanna encourage you with Tim Keller because he's influenced me a ton in the area of um, justice. So when we, when we read this passage of scripture, this well-known passage, if you've grown up in church, maybe you've heard some sermons from it, uh, especially verse eight, um, when it, when it, when it kind of answers the question that is posed there by the, the prophet Micah. And the, the question is that, you know, what, it, what is it that the Lord requires of you? Well, he just concisely lays it out uh, to do justice or to act justly, to love faithfulness, or another translation would be to love mercy and to walk humbly with our God. Two of those three, um, I think, kind of come, not easy. I'm not saying it comes easy, but two of those three kind of make sense to us. I think we say, yeah, I, I'm on board with that. I, I, I sort of understand what that means. And, and the two are to love mercy or to love faithfulness and to walk humbly with our God. The third one, even though it's the first thing that's mentioned, I think has a tendency to, to get overlooked. I think it has a tendency to, to just kind of be dismissed, set aside. This idea of to act justly or some translations say to do justice. Now, why is that, Lyle? Well, I can't give you an exhaustive answer. Uh, I think sometimes because this idea of justice can feel a little messy and we, 
you know, we, we kind of feel division, where are you supposed to do and not supposed to do? And so because of the complexity of it, sometimes we just set it aside and say, what's well, a lot easier for me to get around the idea of loving mercy and faithfulness and walk humbly with our God instead of like stepping back and saying, how can I figure this out? And what does this really mean for me to do justice? That's, that's one reason. Another reason, this is where I'll just camp for just a few minutes. And this may not be your story, but it's kind of my story. All of us grow up in systems and those systems um, they have impact and effect in our lives. So all of us grew up in a family system. All of us have a, we use language of family of origin. So every one of us, you know, grew up in some family system. And in that family system, you learned a lot about how to do life, how to do relationships. And it, and it isn't necessarily that your mom and dad, or maybe you grew up in a single parent home. It isn't like they set you down and taught you all these things. It's just, you absorbed it. You know, there, there are things that you you like food-wise, there's things that you don't like food-wise, there's, there's clothing you like and clothing you don't like, there's ways that you push the toothpaste out of the tooth, whatever, you know what I'm saying? And all that's not like your parents set you down, yeah, you squeeze it from the middle or you squeeze it from them, I don't know, maybe they did, but usually you just do what you see your parents do or you absorb it or whatever. It's, it's, it's just part of being in this system, all right? Are you, are you following me? And I would say the same for us that grew up in church and even if you didn't grow up in church, there's still sort of, and I don't like this terminology, but this is just what I'm going with, a religious system that you grew up in. And so if you, if you grew up in church, you, you grew up in a, in a kind of a system that, um, that, like all churches, is imperfect because it's led by imperfect people. So there's no, no perfect church that, that hits on everything a church needs to be doing 100%. The reality is, is because pastors and leaders are fallible people, just like me, there are things that you emphasize and whether you realize it or not, you de-emphasize. Maybe not on purpose. There are things that you kind of like put a greater emphasis on and there's ones that you kind of like, ah, oh, we really don't talk about that that much, all right? So I grew up in a Southern Baptist church and I'm not trying to like rip on that at all. We're actually Southern Baptists. Please don't leave, have a conversation with me, all right? Uh, but we are, I mean, just getting the cards on the table. Uh, and I grew up as a Southern, in a Southern Baptist church, very conservative Southern Baptist church, and I'm very thankful for that. I'm not, um, yeah, I'm not trying to, um, yeah, critique that or make fun of that in any way. I'm very thankful for that. But in the churches that I grew up on, here's the emphasis that they put on the gospel. So when they talked about the gospel, this good news of what Jesus has done for us, the emphasis was always on the individual. It was, it was always presented as content that you must believe and receive, that you're a sinner by nature, separated from God. The good news is that Jesus came, lived your life, died your death, was raised to new life. If you would trust him, or if you're young here, BBS language, ask Jesus into your heart. He would forgive you of your sins, bring you back into right relationship with God. And when you die, you will spend eternity in heaven with God in the new heavens and the new earth. That is the gospel content that was taught to me, preached to me, and it was spoken primarily on an individual level. It's personal. It's what you must do in order to get right with God. And so not saying that's wrong, right? I, I wholeheartedly believe that. There, it is content. And we, you know, we're here, we exist as a church to reach people with the gospel. We want individuals, people, not just 
whole family, like an individual. Yes, I want a whole family, you know what I'm saying? But it takes individuals in that whole family to hear the gospel, repent of their sins and put their faith and trust in Jesus. Yes, we are for that, we're about that. Thank God that I grew up in a tradition that spoke that week in and week out. However, what was neglected was um, the cosmic nature of the gospel or another way of talking about this. And I said this a few weeks ago, the story of the gospel. So the gospel is both content that we believe in as well as a story that we also live into. Or I'm just trying to give you a bunch of ways of thinking about this. We talk about it around here as a whole gospel. So if you come to our membership class, you'll hear us unpack this. We believe in a whole gospel, not two or three different gospels, a whole gospel in three aspects. And those three aspects is kingdom, cross, grace. So life with God, which is shorthand for kingdom, is made available to us through the cross of Jesus Christ, which is shorthand for the life, death, burial and Jesus, of Jesus Christ. And it's only received by grace. You can't earn it. You're not entitled to it. It's only given to you by grace. I grew up in a tradition that emphasized the two aspects, cross and grace. And I would argue with you, not argue, I would put before you that even grace was kind of a, a head nod to it. It's not really talked about in its radical nature because it is pretty radical, the grace of God that's being extended to us. But I grew up in a tradition that emphasized those two to the neglect of the kingdom. This idea of the reign of God, the rule of God, not only in an individual, but also holistically, that the gospel is not just about your individual renewal, it's also about the renewal of all things. That Jesus is coming back to renew this world, the cosmic nature of the gospel and set everything right. And we as followers of Jesus Christ who have received this gospel have the spirit's empowerment to give a picture of what that's gonna look like right now. We can't bring the kingdom in its fullness. That's only what God can do. But we as followers of Christ can give a picture of that right now in this world, 2020. And a part of doing that is doing justice. So I say this because I'm trying my best to um, sort of um, offset an argument that I hear all the time. And that is this, whenever you begin to talk about social issues, then you're getting away from the gospel. And I wanna put before you, no, we're not. Because the gospel is also about the kingdom of God. And the kingdom of God will be a place where justice reigns, right? It, like there's not gonna be any inequality in the new, new heavens and the new earth. And so we, as the followers of God, as Christians right now, are to give a picture of that now. So we are to do justice and it's not getting away from the gospel because the gospel is both content and story that we live into. The irony of all this is this, and this is, I'm sorry, this is kind of intro. I promise the other two points are shorter, all right? But the irony of this and the Southern Baptist tradition that I grew up in, um, and like I want to be generous here because the reality is, is I could have been sleeping when they talked about this, amen? <laughs> it's like, that's just truth. I could have been tuning out, drawing pictures. I, you know, they probably could have preached on this and 
I was the moron and didn't listen, all right? I get it. And you guys don't listen to me usually, all right? So that's what, just that's a joke. I'm, you guys are great in listening to me. You're awesome. But here's what I want to say. There were social issues that were okay to involve ourselves in because those were kind of considered the conservative church camp. And then there were social issues that we weren't involved ourselves in because they were considered the liberal church camp. Social issues that were conservative was sexuality, like purity, you know, like marriage, all those kind of things, like one woman, one man for a lifetime. And whenever government or society or culture tries to attack the, the orthodoxy of marriage, then we stepped in as a church. The unborn, abortion, trying to get laws changed so that we can protect the unborn. We would step in as a church. Those are social issues, and I'm all for them, and we as a church step into those. Like, we're not against that. Those are social issues. And in the church I grew up in, it's okay to do these. But racial justice and care for the poor, that's what liberal churches did. And so even, even within our culture, politically speaking, bear with me, no emails, all right? We divide this, don't we? Conservatives care about, you know, sexual purity, sort of the orthodoxy of marriage, so to speak, the unborn, and then the liberals, they care about the poor and racial justice. But here's... Here's the irony. God brings those four together. God cares about all of that. And in fact, if you go to Amos chapter 2, verse 7, you'll see all of these in one verse. And so where the church, I'm, I'm not, I don't care what the culture does, all right? Well, I do, but just not right now. Where the church has a tendency to divide, God brings together. And he holds together. And so if this is something that is on the heart of God and he cares a ton about, then we as a church don't have an option. What does the real Lord require of you? Plural? To do justice. How have we missed that? To do justice. This is not optional. And just in case you think, well, maybe that's just kind of like Old Testament, you know what I'm saying? Have we moved beyond the Old Testament? And we're in the New Covenant, you know? What does Jesus say about this? Well, Matthew 23 says this, and we'll get there in a few weeks when we jump back into Matthew here soon. Verses 23 through 24, look what he says here. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. You pay a tenth of mint, dill, and cumin, and yet you have neglected the more important matters of the law, justice, mercy, and faithfulness. Doesn't that sound a lot like Micah 6? So, yeah, like if I just share what's going on in me, there's a ton of insecurities as we jump into this topic even as we jump into a series at the beginning of the near, year next year, like, yeah, there's a ton of insecurities. I, um, yeah, fearful of saying the wrong thing, fearful of not saying the right, right thing, uh, fearful of being labeled something, fearful of what our church may be labeled. 
There's a ton here. Um, And I guess I'm just willing to wade in these waters and know that we won't get all this right. But I'm humble enough to have a plurality of men around me that whenever we feel like, man, we, we might be getting off stray here, that they will come and correct and say, hey, I think we're a little imbalanced. But I would say right now that we as a church are maybe imbalanced in, a, in the very extreme, the other way to where we're not stepping in and doing justice because of fear maybe of what others will say, what they think, what to do, the complexities of this. And so I'm just saying I want to step more into this and ask for grace and continued guidance as the Lord helps us navigate a very complex issue like justice. So with that said, two questions, and I'll be really quick, I promise. The first question is this, is I want to, what is justice? All right, so what's Micah talking about? That's the first question. And then how do we do it? That's it. That's all I'm going to really do. Promise I'll be done quickly. So what is justice? So the word that Micah used when he says do justice or act justly means this. This is from Bruce Watke, an Old Testament scholar. It says this. I think it's on the screen. Justice are those who are willing to disadvantage themselves to advantage a community. The wicked um, are willing to disadvantage the community to disadvantage themselves. That's what that word justice means. To, they're willing, the just, to do justice. You're willing to disadvantage themselves to advantage a community. That's why in Proverbs 11, verse 10, when you understand that definition of justice and doing justice, it makes this first make sense. Proverbs 11, verse 10 says this, when the righteous prosper, the city rejoices. When the wicked perish, there are shouts of joy. So when we, when we read that word righteous, I don't know what definition comes to your mind, but most of us probably think morally, like morally doing good things, righteous things. But when you think about it, if that's the definition of righteous in this verse, when the righteous prosper, the city rejoices. Like my neighbors don't rejoice when I don't use foul language. Oh, thank you for not using that foul language. Man, I'm rejoicing today. Hey, hallelujah. Thank you for not watching that rated R movie. Man, you've helped our family so much because you chose not to watch. Like, and I mean, thanks for laughing a little bit, but that's not what that word means. The, the word can be also translated just. It's the same word that's used in Micah. So it, absolutely now it makes sense, Right? Of course, the city's going to rejoice when the righteous prosper. Why? Because they are ones who are willing to disadvantage themselves to advantage a community. So of course, they're going to be hallelujah, right? Because the wicked do the very opposite of that. And so with that framework of justice, if you go through the Bible, you will see that there are kind of three different facets of how this works out. This idea that I'm disadvantaging myself in order to advantage someone else. So how does that work out holistically in the Bible? Well, there are three different facets when you want to kind of better understand what doing justice involves. The first one, I think these are on our screen here, is equal treatment. Racial and social equality. Leviticus 24, 22, and I know some of you are going, Leviticus, aren't that like obsolete? Don't we don't have to worry about reading that? Well, 
yes, there is, yes, in part. All right, yes, Jesus has fulfilled all of the law. But when you go to the book of Leviticus, there are ways in which we can draw an implication and also in the New Testament where some of these laws have been repeated and still apply to us as new covenant Christians where Jesus has fulfilled the whole of the law. And so one of those, right, is here in verse 22 where God says you are to have the same law for the alien and the native born, which was very foreign in this time. If you go and look up legal codes that were going on in this time and ancient you know, history, you would see that this was not the case. The foreigner, the alien, the immigrant, whoever was not native born, the laws were not the same. They didn't give a rip about them, right? But God comes and says, no, that's not how it works. Why? Because I'm a God of justice. So no matter if you're a foreigner or an alien or an immigrant or a native born, the laws are the same. Now for us, we go, that's just common sense. Oh, yeah. Where do you think your common sense came from? Right here. This wasn't common sense thousands of years ago. That's why God over and over says we are, like this prohibiting of a bribe. I mean, you see this over and over. Don't have unequal scales and, you know, unequal weights or whatever. Why? Why is that the case? Because the poor can't afford to give a bribe. It's inequality. And so to do justice means that there is equal treatment. And so that's why, guys, I mean, as, as, as nerve-wracking as I even think about doing this, this is why I want to get into these racial tension and racial inequality that still exists today. It's not non-existent. It's in our culture. It's in our city. And we as a church need to be having these conversations Not so that we can get it right, but so that we can learn what God wants when it comes to justice in these areas. And so let's wade into these waters that, wow, this could be really hard, but let's not just go, "Eh, you know, let's let everybody figure that out. No, where else are they going to go? They need to come to the church and have conversations around this so that we can capture the very heart of God when it comes to doing justice and make sure there's equal treatment, racial and social equal treatment treatment. So that's the first aspect and the first facet when you think about justice, when you look at the Bibles as a whole. The second one is this, is that there is special concern for the vulnerable populations. Well, that sounds like you're talking out of both sides of your mouth, Lyle, right? Aren't you showing favoritism and, you know, partiality? You just said, you know, justice is about equal treatment, and then you're coming and telling me there's special concerns for the vulnerable populations. Well, yes, there's both. Zechariah 7, most scholars call it the quartet of the vulnerable. And the four are this, widows, orphans, immigrants, and the poor. So yes, there are, yes, there are small groups, right, that need more than equal treatment. They need special concern. There's over 2,300 verses where God talks about his heart for the widow, the orphan, the immigrant, and the poor. That's why in Proverbs 31, verse 9, it says, speak up. Be an advocate. Speak up and judge fairly. Defend the rights of the poor and needy. Why? Why do I got to speak up for the poor? Why do I got to speak up for the needy? Because they can't speak up for themselves. 
The rich don't need that. And if you're wondering who the rich are, it's, it's all of us. The rich have means to where they don't need other people to speak up for them. So it's not just about treating everyone equally, but it's also about showing special concern for the most vulnerable in our population. That's why we care about adoption and foster care in our church. That's why for years we have partnered with a loving choice out of Shelbyville because we care about the unborn, some of the most vulnerable people in our society. That's why we want to do something in December called the Affordable Christmas to where we speak up and, and help and lean in to families that are struggling economically. And so social justice, or not social justice, biblically speaking, is yes, it's about equal treatment. And at the same time, it's also about special concern for those who are most vulnerable. And then lastly, the third facet of justice as we see in the Bible is the one that's probably the hardest for us to hear. Um, but it's part of doing justice, and that is this, generosity, giving, sharing. This was the one that, um, not that they all didn't surprise me on some level, but this one is the one that surprised me the most, and I learned a lot about it over the course of this week. In Proverbs 3, verses 27 through 28, it says this, Do not withhold good, from those who deserve it, and so pay attention to the word deserve it, when it is in your power to act. Do not say to your neighbor, come back later, I'll give it tomorrow, when you now have it with you. And so the word for good there obviously is not meaning nice, right? Do not withhold good. Do not withhold, it's not saying kindness or niceness or respect, you know, those are, that's good stuff, but that's not what he's talking about there. The word for good there is talking about tangible goods, and we know that based on the context because verse 28 says, don't say to your neighbor, come back later, I'll give it, give it tomorrow, where well, the it is tangible goods. So if your neighbor is without money in order to buy food and you have the goods to do that, then buy food for them. If your neighbor can't afford their rent or their house payment and you have the goods in order to afford their rent or house payment, then you provide for them. If your neighbor doesn't have a washer and they can't wash their clothes and you have the goods, you have a washer and you can wash their clothes for them, you go do that. Or maybe you've got the financial situation to where you can go and buy them a washer, then go and buy them a washer. That's, that's the idea of doing goods, tangible things. Now the word deserve it, right? I'm out. This is where, once again, it kind of goes back to the system. All of us put on a pair of glasses on how we read the Bible. Like, we do. Like, we don't come with a clean slate. We don't. Like, we have a pair of glasses of how we even read a word like deserve it. And here's my example. Some of us may have read that word say, do not withhold good from those who deserve it, meaning that there are some people in this world that deserve my, my giving to them and my goods, and then there are others who don't deserve it. And so based on whether they deserve it or not is determining how I give or I don't give. So if I feel like this person's deserving of my giving and generosity, then I will give to them. If I don't feel like they're deserving of my giving and generosity, then I won't give to them. Well, that's not at all what this word means. The word actually means ownership. Ouch, right? So... 
The writer of Proverbs is basically saying this, that your neighbor, your neighbor who doesn't have as many goods as you owns your goods. That's why in the English Standard Version, you can go home and look this up. Verse 27 is translated like this, do not withhold good from those to whom it's due. It's literally, do not hold good from its owners. So This is not Lyle saying this. So if you're getting your underwear in a wad, hang on a second, right? It's not Lyle. This is what God is saying. The needy, the poor, have some claim on your assets. The world is God's. He owns everything. He has given you more of it to steward than someone else. And that doesn't mean all of it wholly belongs to you. But like any steward, we must use the true owner's wealth as he wishes it to be used. Your neighbor who's in need has claim on your goods as much as you do. That didn't sit real well with me this week, and I'm still struggling with it. I'm just being honest, confession of sin here. So in essence, right, like Jay, who's one of my neighbors, if he needs a tractor in order to mow his lawn, he owns my little tractor. (laughs) It's like, it's his. If he needs a I don't know. I'm trying to throw out things. It's not in my notes right now. Weed eater. I don't know what you guys call it. Weed whacker or whatever. I don't know. That's his. It's in my garage. It's his. That's, that's in essence what, what the writer of Proverbs is saying here. And once again, maybe you're going, well, that's Old Testament. Are we supposed to apply all this? Blah, 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 blah. Well, this is not on the screen, but James chapter 2, right? Isn't that kind of what he's getting after? When he says this starting in verse 16, or verse 15, if a brother or sister is without clothes and lacks daily food, and one of you says to him, go in peace, stay warm, and be well fed, we'll pray for you. <laughs> but you don't give them what the body needs, what good is it? In the same way, faith, if it doesn't have works, is dead by itself. You see, God looks at our wealth and our goods way differently than we do. I look at my goods and my wealth. I'm just, I don't know how you do, but I, this is kind of what goes on in me, right? I earned it. I worked hard for it. I got a master's degree. I've worked hard for what I got. So basically, I earned it. Yeah, I got some breaks. Got some opportunities that I didn't seek or go after. And, you know, so, but basically, for the most part, I earned it. It's mine. God sees it completely opposite, doesn't he? He said, basically, I gave it all to you. And he's probably kind of kind and going, if you want to percentage it, percentage it, you know, 95% I gave to you, 5% you did. And you did a pretty good job with the 5%, right? If that's what we want. Because God would have a conversation with you and basically say this, did you determine what century you were born in? I mean, think about it, men in this room. If you, 
If you were born in the late 20s, I think that's kind of my calculations, right? Most of us in this room would not have made it to our 21st birthday. You would have been drafted off into war. And who decided that? Did you decide what family you'd grow up in or get born in? Did you decide what area you would grow up in? Did you decide where you would, did you, was that you? No, God's just going, nope, that wasn't you. That was all me. So everything you have is a gift. Doesn't downplay hard work. Doesn't downplay responsibility. Doesn't downplay, yeah, like we're not, all kinds of, Proverbs to talk about hard work and the need for that. I'm not trying to downplay that. I'm just trying to get us to see our goods and our things from the perspective of God. Basically, all given to you. Goods, opportunities, assets of this world are not equitably distributed. It's not. Why is that, Lyle? Because we live in a fallen, broken world. Some of us begin life on first base and others of us don't even begin life in the parking lot. And what God is saying here, when we're doing justice, you may be one of those who have gotten breaks, grew up in a good family that loved you, set you on a good course. You've gotten the goods of this world And as a follower of Jesus Christ, that's the key. A heart that's transformed. God is inviting us, and not just inviting us, but helping us see we have a responsibility to share and to give. Because they're not ours, they're they're his and they're our neighbors. And when we don't share them, listen to me. It's not that we're stingy. We're being unjust. It's injustice. That God has graciously given you more of the goods. And there are great needs out there. And he's given us the responsibility and the invitation to share of those goods that we have. And when we don't, it's not being stingy. It's not even really being tight-fisted. It's actually Injustice. That's why I'm thankful that we are, um, we're, we're a collective of churches here, our family of churches. We have six total churches. They're not campuses, they're churches. So there's Sojourn Church J Town, Sojourn Church East. There's Sojourn Church New Albany. There's Sojourn Church Goshen. There's Sojourn Church Midtown and Sojourn Church Carlisle. We're all a family of churches trying to lock arms and do this together in order to reach people with the gospel. The beauty of this is that we have an opportunity to lock arms with two churches that are in the inner city. We don't have to manufacture this relationship. We don't have to try to figure out how we make, no, we are in this together. We are covenant partners together. And that's a, a beautiful opportunity for us as a church here. Because for churches like Sojourn Carlisle and Sojourn Midtown to be a thriving, 
gospel-centered, Christ-exalting, Bible-believing, Bible-preaching church that's reaching its neighborhood, which is made up of primarily poor people, and for them to continue to have the kind of ministries that they can have in that place, dependent solely on a congregation that's probably in the lower bracket of the income, it's just not going to happen. It's going to suffer. It's going to be hard. It's going to be difficult. But guess what? God is so sovereignly chosen to allow us to be a part of this collective of churches to where we, and I don't mean this in a derogatory, offensive way, where we, primarily white, suburban, middle class, have the resources to help them. What an opportunity that we have here to have an impact on a, a community that needs to hear the gospel, that needs a solid local church that exalts Jesus, gospel central, and teaches the Bible. Oh my gosh, it just makes me want to wet my pants. I'm so excited about it, right? It's so beautiful what God has done to us. And so the invitation for us, look at me, look, it's not just our time. Yes, there is a group of men that, that got in touch with um, uh, the associate pastor there at Carlisle who had a family that lives nearby them who had a hole in their floor and their kitchen floor is just absolutely horrendous. A group of our men went over there, spent a couple Saturdays and repaired their floor, got a little new linoleum down. That's kind of hard to say, but you know what I'm talking about, new linoleum, whatever, new floor, whatever it is, right? Got all that done. And I'm thankful that was both time and money. Yes, and we want to continue to have that kind of partnership. But hear me, hear me, guys, look, look. A big part of this partnership is that we're going to give our money. That every year, Lord willing, we do a year-end giving deal, a big portion of that is going to go to help these two churches that are trying to thrive and make it in a very difficult context. We have the goods. And we have a responsibility to share those goods, and when we don't, it's not just stinginess, it's injustice. So justice, equal treatment, justice, special concern for the most vulnerable, and lastly, it's about generosity, sharing, giving. So, I'll end with this. So how do we do this? Well, I don't know about you, but sometimes when you talk about this issue of justice, sometimes you feel a lot of guilt. You feel guilty about being in suburbia. You feel guilty about being well off, wherever that may be. You feel guilty about being in middle class. You feel guilty about being a white person. I mean, you do. You just start feeling all this kind of guilt. But I'm just here to tell you that's not helpful, and that's not what we're about, and that's not what I'm about. Because guilt is something on the inside, outside, I'm sorry, trying to get you to do something without changing you on the inside. So if you're feeling guilt right now, just stop. This is not going to help you. I'm serious. You're, you, you will not change anything by walking out here feeling guilty. Instead, this is what is so good about the gospel. It is, it is a promise that when we receive Christ, we get a changed heart, changed desires, changed motives. It starts from the inside, and then it also changes our behavior. So we work from the inside out. And so look, guys, look, if you're, walk, if you're feeling guilt, then, then take that guilt upon Jesus 
and gaze your heart, gaze your eyes upon Jesus who suffered unjustly for you, who, who identified with the poor. I mean, he came in, into a poor family. The only thing he owned was a cloak at the end of his day, and, and that was divided up and cast lots. He, he was buried in a borrowed tomb. He was very poor, but he identified with them. And then, then he gave. Like, let me just think about all that he gave to us, the generosity that he extended to us. Allow those things, those truths, the gospel. Gaze your heart, gaze your mind on those things. And man, I'm, I mean, sometimes I feel like that's overly simplistic, but at the same time, I don't think it is. This is how we move out and do what he's commanded us to do so we're not overwhelmed by guilt because guilt doesn't do anything for us. So if you feel guilty, then set that aside and gaze your heart and mind upon Jesus because he is the one that can change you so you become a person who does justice. And that's why every week when we gather together, we end with communion. It's a, it's a recentering, like, okay, how is this possible? What's well, possible through Jesus Christ? And so if you're a Christian, I encourage you to grab the little cup next to you or, or maybe it's on your seat right there. And let's take this together as we reflect upon the sacrifice that Jesus, what he gave to us, and may it move our hearts to be a church of justice. So take off the first little film there, and when you do that, there's a little wafer. And this wafer is a representation of the body of Christ that's been broken for you. Eat this in remembrance of him. And then take off the next film. And this is a representation of the blood of Christ which has been shed for you for the forgiveness of sins. Drink this in remembrance of him. Let's pray together. Hey, I'm Lyle Drury and the lead pastor at Sojourn Church, J-Town. Thanks for listening. We are here to reach people with the gospel, build them up as a church, and send them into the world to be a faithful, loving presence. For more sermons, info about our church, or ways you can support our ministry, visit sojournchurch.com slash J-Town.